Good day, and thank you for joining us for today's FNA talk, which will be examining intraday liquidity stress testing. Events such as the global financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic have highlighted the importance of stress testing as part of a robust risk management toolkit. Now, although stress testing for market and credit risk are highly studied, we're now beginning to see more focus on liquidity and intraday liquidity stress testing. Indeed, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision released monitoring tools for intraday liquidity management, also known as BCBS 248, which identified monitoring sources and uses of intraday liquidity and stress conditions stemming from own financial stress, counterparty stress, customer bank stress, and finally, a market-wide credit or liquidity stress. Examining the impact of this requires the ability to measure and understand the dynamics of liquidity and credit lines as a result of payment mismatches some of which require employing new methods and mathematical approaches, not to mention the challenges related to operations, data availability, and processing. Our guests today are Carlos Leon, Gilberto chavez Velaquez, and Kimo Soromaki. Carlos is a senior researcher at the Central Bank of Colombia. Carlos has published extensively around the topics of network analytics, financial stability, and liquidity. He's also a professor and an occasional short-term expert with the IMF. Gilberto is the head of liquidity modeling for Treasury Stats. Prior to joining Deutsche Bank, Gilberto worked at uh, Global Macro Portfolio Manager and Managing Director for Derivatives on both the buy and sell side. Kimo is the founder and CEO of FNA. Kimo has worked with a number of the world's leading central banks and FMIs applying a simulation and network analytic approach to optimizing and stress testing liquidity. Thank you for joining us today, gentlemen, and look forward to your insights. So to get us started, I think it would make sense to speak to some of the approaches to applying stress testing for intraday liquidity. Um, Gilberto, uh, what do you see from, uh, your, from your perspective? Sure. So I, I think in the U.S. at least, um, the common approach really would be what I would call a control limit framework, which is um, effectively some sort of, let's take the average of LMCP and apply some sort of, you know, factor times some standard deviation and, and calculate that buffer, right? Very, very similar to a, uh, a sort of bar type approach. Um, you know, there's sort of the historical look back, which which effectively does the same thing, but doesn't really do, uh, let's say, make any any assumptions on you know the, the distribution. There's something that we internally call SDA approach, which is uh, fitting the data through some sort of mi maximum likelihood estimation approach, and and doing it that way, right? And saying, well, my my data is not normal; it's beta or gamma or whatever you want to do. Um, there's you know, what I would call a, a LSTM approach, right? Neural network, uh, which is tried. Uh, there's something which is um, a Hawks process approach, right? Where we sort of enter a, a non-Markovian world. Um, and then there's the one that we particularly like because to us, it captures the uh, the key behavioral assumptions, which which we see in in our internal data, which is sort of this tit for tat, virtual behavior, uh, virtu virtual cycle, uh, vicious cycle, behavior, which is the 
we call it the Leon model approach, which was based on, on Carlos's approach. Um, I think that's particularly appealing because it really drives home, um, you know, all of the other methods will give you sort of the top line buffer, but um, only if you start delving into sort of network theory or, um, you know, what we call the Leon approach, where you really get these behavioral assumptions nailed down. So that's that's pretty much how we see uh, we see the different approaches. I think from from a systemic approach, from a central banking approach, probably the network theory approach makes the most sense. But it's also something that's a bit unrealistic from an individual bank's perspective. So I'll stop there and uh, see what um, other approaches or, or, or what the, the panel thinks is, is relevant. Thank you for that, Gilberto. And, uh, and, and you, Carlos, would you uh, like to bring some of your insights? Yeah, well, uh, the Central Bank of Colombia, we have uh, employed uh, several of the things that Gilberto already talked about. For instance, uh, some like statistical statistical things like the upper bound, daily maximum interday liquidity usage, the timing of payments. Those are the things that we try like to to um, to calculate on a regular basis, just to have like a, a flavor of what's going on with the intraday liquidity. But I, I think that the the thing that we are using the most right now has to do uh, with something that Gilberto also mentioned, which has to do with network analysis. But we do it like in a in a let's say let's call it like like in, in a in a native way, because what we try to do is to to simulate payments. What, what we try to do is to, uh, it, it, and it has to do a little bit with what the uh, principles for financial market infrastructures uh, suggest in, in their principle seven for financial market infrastructures in the sense that they suggest that we should use uh, potential stress scenarios that should include the default of the participant uh, of these financial market infrastructures. But what we do is we adjust this to financial institutions. So what we do is we, for each financial institution, we, uh, let's call it like this, we unplug its main uh, counterparty in terms of uh, intraday liquidity. We unplugged it and we run all the simulation of what would happen in the payment system to try to measure what is the um, impact in the entire system in terms of, of the liquidity that was not uh, exchanged at the end of the day. We run this for all financial institutions, for each one of those financial institutions in the system, about 150, because we have banks and non-banks in the large value payment system. And at the end, we have a, a fair measure under not many um, uh, question, questionable assumptions, we have a measure of what would be the footprint or the impact that uh, one financial institution failing to receive liquidity from its paying counterpart would be to the system. So we work with individual measurement and we also try to work with the um, distribution of, the, of, this, uh, of this measure. So it's, 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 it's a way for us to have like uh, um, flags raised in case of something changes over time. That's more or less what we are trying to do now, besides what Gilberto already mentioned. Interesting, thank you. Thank you for that, Carlos. Uh, and, and Kimo, do you have any thoughts to, to share on, on this? Sure, so um, um, I think I'm, I'm probably going to say about the same things, but maybe a little bit different words. Um, so how uh, we think about it is, um, is, is a problem of sim simulation, uh, building a replica of the, uh, of the um, existing infrastructure with its uh, rules and processing mechanisms, um, and then uh, 
Secondly, creating uh, synthetic uh, stress events or scenarios that consist of uh, of a set of payments uh, that uh, you run through these uh, these pipes, and then uh, but uh, but those synthetic payments uh, incorporate uh, um, different type of uh, stress events that may be developed um, um, taking into account real data and the moment different moments of that data and response functions that we find in the real data to create this uh, synthetic uh, stress event that uh, that uh, is then run through the simulator. Uh, and then the outcome of that stress event uh, is measured um, through through those simulations. Uh, um, we've done a lot of different replicas of uh, existing infrastructures, like uh, like the CHAPS in the UK or or the uh, LVTS or Lynx in Canada, um, mostly to um to simulate or uh, for, for these uh, um, operators of of these systems to simulate how to make these systems more efficient. Uh, so that's one question that comes with these simulations. But of course, the other side of the coin is that uh, be the, the, once you have the simulator, you're also able to ask this question, what if something goes wrong? Uh, like uh, Carlos said, what if, uh, if uh, one participant uh, fails in the system, what are the repercussions of it? Or if there is a stressed event, stressed market event, how does that uh, reflect in the, uh, in the payments that need to be processed in, in the system? Um, and um, and um, then the outcomes are in a way measured through this uh, this um, simulation approach. Excellent, thank you. Thank you for that, John. So, uh, you know, obviously we, we understand to, that to support this, um, we really, we need to collect and, and, and process the, the data. And what are some of the, from, from your representative perspectives? So uh, we've got a bank here, we've got a, a, a regulatory perspective and, 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 and a software provider. What are some of the data and, and operational challenges in quantifying and measuring stress tests from an intraday liquidity perspective. And perhaps, uh, uh, Carlos, you, you could uh, start us off here. Yes, uh, from, from the perspective of a central bank that owns and manages the large value payment system, uh, data is rather straightforward to attain. I mean, for us, it's, it's rather easy to find very granular and timely data. Uh, uh, moreover, in, in, uh, in Colombia and in many countries of Latin America, let's say Brazil or Mexico, it is common that you find that the large value payment system has all uh, transactions earmarked. I mean, they're tagged or you can identify which type of, of, um, of transaction each one of those transactions is. So for us, for instance, to have something like, I don't know, interbank uh, loans is very easy to, to, to filter out from the entire large value payment system. So it's very easy for us to identify which uh, transaction do we want to work with when we're talking about intraday liquidity. So for a central bank that has a lot of, of data, granular and, and uh, timely data as we have, uh, it, the data is not the problem. The problem comes more, uh, and, and the time that we uh, devote most is to designing the methods. It has to do with uh, reviewing the literature, what the literature says about uh, what are the best uh, ways to, to measure intraday liquidity risk, how to design the um, these uh, algorithms. And uh, at the end, uh, that something which is very important is how to explain these things to the senior staff, because normally senior staff is not uh, very familiar with intraday liquidity. You know that senior staff at supervisors and central banks normally, they're very familiar with, I don't know, exchange rates, uh, liquidity, but banking liquidity, I mean, 10 day, one month, but it's, it's, uh, it's sometimes difficult to, 
to come up with uh, good um, ideas and with good measures if uh, the uh, senior staff is not well aware of the problem of intraday liquidity. And it happens a lot that, uh, that uh, it, this is not something that you discuss a lot with many people, I mean, in, in senior levels of financial institutions and the central banks and supervisors. So it's it's also important not only to have the data, not only to have the methods, but also to have like the, um, the knowledge and the, and the uh, sense of importance of this intraday liquidity at the end. Thank you for that, Carlos. And so, yeah, it sounds like it's it's not just about the data, but also how, you, how you're communi communi communicating that to, to different stakeholders. So, interesting. And uh, Gilberto, from, from your perspective, um, what are you seeing from, from, from the bank side? Sure. I mean, I would say this is probably the most important topic and the most vexing topic that, that we faced internally. Um, obviously, there were some technical challenges in terms of the approach, but really in terms of letting... Uh, laying down all of the, the infrastructure, right? The piping, if you will, of, um, you know, processing that data with minimal, um, let's say manual input, right? And as Scottles knows, these, you know, you can't do these things in Excel, right? So you have to go to you know, some sort of Python type framework or, or something like that. And, and this creates a number of issues. Um, obviously there's, an issue as well in terms of the review and challenge process, uh, whether uh, you're getting the right people to review it um, in terms of second line of defense and whether they have obviously the, the skill set and, and the technical ability and whatnot um, to enable to make a, an effective assessment. Um, and, and finally, I think what Carlos mentioned was very important too in terms of you know, these filters, what to include, what to exclude, what, what constitutes a, a credit or a debit. So as an example, you might have certain pre-funded transactions, uh, you know, some sort of syndicated loan or, or an issuance that's very well telegraphed and that the business will plan for. And that really doesn't represent an aleatory risk from the, from the point of view of these types of payments especially because it's captured generally in, in let's say, other risk rep representations. So, for example, if you have a, a committed facility-specific risk document, right, you can't sort of penalize the same risk twice. So I would say that from, uh, from a, uh, an operational perspective, right, these are the, the challenges which were most, um, you know, which, which most of the governance and most of the time of the institution was spent towards. Thank you for that. And, and Kimo, do you have any thoughts to add from, from, from our perspectives? Yeah, maybe a couple. So um, I think payments data at least the central banks uh, was the first granular data set that was available for, for, for them. Uh, so uh, there's been a lot of research for that reason on, on payments. Um, um, although it wasn't always the case uh, when, when I did the first simulations, maybe 24 years ago, we didn't have a, have a, a granular level payment level data yet available. The production system couldn't, couldn't produce data. Um, when we did this maybe like 10 years ago, a little bit over 10 years ago at the European Central Bank, um, there was also lots of problems around identifying entities uh, because they participated from all over the world with different big codes. That I think uh, was one of the, one of the drivers also why, why the whole legal entity identifier uh, project uh, got kick-started and now, now it's live and is helping to identify banks uh, ar around the world. 
I think you always get this entity resolution problem that um, there are, of course, also you provide algorithms and tools to, to identify the entities. Um, I think with the banks, um, because of this uh, BCBS 248 and other, other sort of regulatory pressure to, to um, set up these data lakes, the situation is getting much better than it was uh, before uh, on, on data access. Um, so these type of uh, granular level data projects are, are becoming possible. Um, I think um, what Gilberto says about the challenges in understanding the data, I completely agree. Um, and also maybe would add a couple of uh, uh, other ones to that uh, mix, which would be, so once we understand the results, uh, how can we, how, how do we understand how they um, translate into economic uh, meanings uh, of uh, what, what does it mean when, when you can save on intraday liquidity uh, or on credit lines, how, that, that, how does that translate into uh, into actual monetary savings uh, um, th through maybe transfer pricing, through uh, through having less collateral at the central bank. Uh, how does that translate into actual savings that 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 are measured somewhere, uh, and um, and uh, also for uh, the capital charges uh, that that come from the maybe reduced credit lines. Uh, so understanding what is the economic impact of of the results, I think, is also also important to um, to um, uh, get right. Right, that makes sense. Thank you. Now, shifting over to to looking at this from a uh, regulatory perspective. So, one place many regulators are are looking to inform intraday stress testing stems from what we've been talking about here in terms of BCBS two four eight and the stress testing requirements. So, um, you know, applying your own financial stress, identifying major counterparties, customer banks, and and a market wide credit or liquidity event. Um, so from your perspective, what are some of the important considerations that go into building a successful program to address these requirements? And uh, maybe Carlos, you can, you can start us off here. Yeah, sure. Well, the BCBS 248 is uh, designed for uh, bank institutions to do that by themselves. Uh, in Colombia, the, I mean, the central bank is not the supervisor, so the supervisor is outside the central bank, so I, I cannot talk about how they use or they don't use this BCB 248 to, to, to require banks uh, these kind of reports. But from our oversight, because the Central Bank of Colombia uh, does the oversight of the of the um, market infrastructures and financial institutions, what we can say about this is that uh, this has to uh, be applied to all types of financial institutions. Our main, let's say, uh, like criticism over the BCB 248 is that it does only apply. It, it is designed for banking institutions only. In Colombia, we have uh, realized that the banks are, in our case, perhaps the less uh, prone to have interliquidity liquidity risk because they have big reserve requirements. So normally they start with huge amounts of money uh, each day. So the interliquidity liquidity uh, risk that they have, it's, 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 uh, it's not very high. But what we have found out is that uh, all the other financial institutions, especially broker dealers or uh, other trust funds, uh, they manage liquidity very, uh, let's call it like uh, in a very narrow margin. So what we have uh, uh, learned from BCB 248 and other uh, um, frameworks 
that we have uh, employed is that these type of, of stress testing requirements are equally or even more important to, do, to those financial institutions that are not banks. That in the case in Colombia, they are direct participants of the large value payment system. So they can uh, put the system at risk because we know from, from simulations that there are financial institutions which are small in size, but very well interconnected and that manage a lot of liquidity and of, of financial assets, that uh, we should be looking very careful at, at those financial institutions, at those non-banking financial institutions. So that would be like my, my view on, uh, on this uh, BCB S248 in the sense that it is a very nice uh, thing to find that intraday liquidity is having like this uh, importance right now. It's something which is rather new after the 2008, 2009 uh, events. But I think that uh, this has to apply to a, a wider uh, set of financial institutions that uh, participate in large value payment systems. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that, Carlos. And uh, Kimo, any thoughts to add? Maybe just a small one uh, that um, we are in a way, I think, discussing two topics here. One is the uh, bank internal liquidity management, which is 248, that uh, you can also analyze from uh, the, uh, the infrastructure data provided by the infrastructure where these RTGS systems, where the payments are eventually settled in central bank money. Uh, but uh, there's also the core principles for systemically important payment systems that, uh, that um, um, one of the principles is that uh, these systems need to be able to withstand the failure of the largest or, or second or two of the largest if they're systemical in that in that country uh, participants. Uh, so I think that's just like an ad, uh, top on addition to, to, to this, uh, uh, like the intraday liquidity distress testing from, from that perspective too. Interesting, thank you. And uh, Gilberto, that would be very interesting to hear from you. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I echo, uh, you know, Carlos and, and Kimo's uh, comments. I, I do believe that there's going to be, again, much more, more scrutiny or there should be much more scrutiny on broker-dealers because of uh, what, what Carlos spoke about. And in particular, sort of the, you know, the collateral, the potential collateral impairment that you would have under stress scenarios. Um, as well, also, I think in, in certain systems, right, with let's say low number of participants, you tend to get much bigger concentration risks. So case in point, which something Kimo would, would know very well, would be something like chaps. Um, so you, you tend to get much more concentration risks, at least we found from our own internal portfolios, vis-a-vis -vis other systems. Um, and I think that, that all of that, um, you know, when, when it's analyzed in terms of counterparty delays or market delays, a sort of concept of, you know, symmetric or asymmetric throttling um, and for how long, right? And that, that all, all comes into play uh, in terms of how, you know, one, one looks at the problem. So mm -hmm. um, that's, that's how we're looking at it at the moment. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so I'm sure our, our audience would be uh, very interested so in, in, to see actually in, in light of recent circumstances such as uh, COVID-19 pandemic, what are some of the new techniques and considerations that one can bring to bear in an intraday liquidity stress testing program? And maybe Kimo, you can uh, you can start us off. Uh, sure. So um, um, there is um, there is um, maybe also another dimension to this, not only the stress testing, but being able to just uh, optimize liquidity better 
um, when it's getting scarcer under normal circumstances as well. And, um, and um, that is something that we really worked over the last year is to develop uh, new algorithms that uh, help both under normal circumstances uh, to, uh, to uh, make payments more efficiently with less liquidity and, uh, and uh, perhaps less delays. Um, and then at the same time also help uh, um, on abnormal circumstances uh, when, when there's shortages of liquidity. And these methods are, are based on, on a better orchestration of, uh, of the payments so that they are, they are synced better so that the liquidity that is received by someone is uh, used to settle payments that help the settlement of other payments by other participants and so forth in, in a chain. Um, and also the novel ways of, uh, of doing um, um, more efficient uh, netting algorithms uh, that not, don't necessarily require a, a central netting agent. Um, so I think there's quite a lot of uh, efficiency gains uh, to be gained both under normal and under abnormal or stretched circumstances uh, by uh, utilizing better algorithms to, to, uh, to settle payments. Excellent, thank you. And, uh, and Gilberto, what are you seeing from, from, from your side? Sorry, I, th I think it's um, the usual issues in the sense that if you look at the, the pandemic crisis, it really brought to bear sort of what the, what the models are there for, right? And in particular, that there needs to be an alignment, let's say, with models, between the models and the bank's risk appetite. So to put it into context, let's say, if, if you look at a committed facilities um, model, right? I don't think from speaking to counterparties on the street, there, there isn't a particular model that predicted sort of subsequent outflows that you saw. And then the huge inflows, as you saw the debt substitution from bond issuance, retiring of these facilities and repayment of, of them. Um, for this new debt. And that's very different, let's say, than we saw in 2008. 2008 was much more financial crisis, and this was much more of a, you know, non-financial corporates, in particular, the, um, the C&I sector, um, travel and leisure, things, things like that were also very highly impacted. So to me, it, it just drives the point that you really need to align your models with bankers' appetite. You also need to question, you know, do you want to necessarily hedge at the tail risk for this, you know, for this pandemic or just recognize it for what it is. And I think that the regulators have come down on the side of, um, you know, if anything, uh, designing rules and issuing, you know, things like SR 20-5 and 15, not to penalize the banks and saying, look, it's okay to dip into your buffers, to uh, to be uh, counter-cyclical, we don't necessarily want you guys to be uh, pro-cyclical in, 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 uh, in your risk modeling approach. Thank you for that. And, and Carlos, uh, your thoughts? Well, I agree with uh, Gilbert and with Kimo, but uh, I would like to add something that, that uh, I have uh, realized in, in, the, in the last months when we were talking internally at the Central Bank of Colombia about the intraday liquidity risk and, and obviously what, what Kimo said about the, the liquidity needs that we uh, financial systems in general have uh, because of the pandemic. And I think is that many models, including stress testing models, could be uh, reversed engineered. 
Uh, I, what I mean with this is that uh, you know that, for instance, uh, reserve requirements for banking institutions uh, perhaps are very high. They're very like designed like the old way when uh, in, in the uh, 80s or 70s, the runs on banks uh, required financial institutions to have reserves just to protect themselves from people going to the ATMs or the offices just to uh, draw their money. Uh, I think that 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 period has already, it, it, I mean, I, I don't think that that will happen very easily uh, right now. So perhaps one way that we could use stress testing and other types of uh, intraday liquidity models is to make uh, reverse engineering to try to find which is an acceptable level of intraday liquidity that financial institutions uh, can bear or can have and uh, try to find which is the minimum liquidity that you should require to them, not like a reserve requirement, but like a, 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 a intraday buffer that all financial institutions, not only banking institutions, but also broker dealers, uh, trust funds should have like a buffer so they can uh, work. I mean, the, 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 uh, the payment system can work smoothly and safely, but also that uh, financial institutions, especially banks, which are entitled with the function of, of intermediating money, uh, find this intermediation uh, more easily than uh, when they have a, a pure reserve requirement that is very like old fashioned in, in the way it's designed. So that's something that I would like to add to the what Kimon Gilberto said, the, which I agree with those uh, opinions as well. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, a lot of great food for thought here. I wanna thank you for your insights and for sharing your perspective of stress testing intraday liquidity. It's been very interesting to hear it from, from these different perspectives uh, and to our audience. Thank you for joining us on this FNA talk. We hope you found it informative and have a good day.